We're looking in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. Now tonight I will read in various versions, but here on your... Uh, on the paper tonight, we're reading in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15 in the NLT version. It says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive your sins. The King James version reads this way. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The Lord laid this on my heart Sunday afternoon and Monday as um, I was asked to teach this lesson this week. Um, I just thought about forgiveness and about receiving and giving and not forgiving. We talk a lot about forgiveness, but sometimes we don't talk about unforgiveness and the repercussions of unforgiveness. Many times in Christian circles, we pay what is called quote unquote lip service to the idea of forgiveness without dealing honestly with some of the objections people would raise to this subject. We are prone to tell only one side of the story, extolling the benefits of forgiveness without mentioning how hard it can be sometimes to tr be truly and truly forgive those who have wronged us. Now, I, I'm not expecting a lot of amens at that point because it's hard to be honest sometimes with ourselves. That it is hard at sometimes to, to forgive when someone has wronged you. I know that we are seasoned in our lives, but if we would ask your grandkids or even our children when your, their sibling would do something to them, they may say they're sorry at the moment, but there's really no forgiveness right then and there. Anybody remember being a kid? I'm only telling you sorry because mama told me to tell you I'm sorry, but I'm really not sorry. Because five minutes later, we're going at it again. Have you ever heard a sermon or a Bible study that made a strong case against forgiveness? Have you ever heard of a spiritual advisor or a counselor counseling someone by saying what happened to you is so awful that you would be crazy to forgive them? It's all right to hang on to those feelings of bitterness and hurt for the rest of your life. Go ahead, hold on to that. That's going to be all right. It's okay to do that because what was done to you does not need forgiving. No, no pastor would ever advise someone to do that simply for their own good. And yet that's exactly what most people choose to do to themselves. They hang on to an offense and to an adversity, it adversely affects them. The reason we hold on to these feelings is because we build up a rationale against forgiveness in our own minds. We put it together logically, piece by piece, until the case seems airtight to us. And yet we know it in instinctively that the actual argument circulating obsessively in our minds would sound pretty unconvincing to other people. If we were to speak what we're feeling out, other people would say, well, why don't you just go seek forgiveness? But we have taken it upon ourselves in our mind to think about it so much and obsess about it so much that we say, I can't forgive them. So rather than speak them out loud, we simply sum them all up with one conclusive statement or an attitude, a demeanor, 
and it says this, I can't forgive. See, the real issue many times is not that we can't forgive. It's that we think we shouldn't have to forgive. After all, we are the victim. Why should we have to do something that is uncomfortable for us? Why should our offender be allowed to get off scot-free? So today, let's put forgiveness itself on what I would like to call a trial and weigh the evidence for and against it. Are there legitimate reasons why you or I shouldn't forgive? Are there times when not letting the offender off the proverbial hook is the right option Am I justified in feeling the way that I do because someone has wronged me? So here we go. Number one, forgiveness denies the seriousness of sin. Many people believe that by forgiving, we are denying the severity of that offense. We, but there's many that have the thought process that says, if I say, I'm sorry, or you're, I forgive you for doing that for me. It's giving that person an open door to hurt me again. So therefore, we think that if we forgive them, it's denying the seriousness of what they said, what they did, or whatever the matter may be to us. So we withhold forgiveness because we want them to be punished. Now, I understand this is a pretty strong um Bible study tonight and the fact that at some point in time every one of us have dealt with forgiveness and unforgiveness. It's like saying that what our offender did doesn't really matter. Somebody should say amen. Now even those same people would probably agree that some offenses are so petty that we should overlook them. A forgotten birthday, an interrupted sentence, an unreturned phone call. And the Bible would certainly support this viewpoint. Anybody ever text somebody? And as soon as you see them text, they don't have the red part. If you're, if you have an iPhone, it doesn't show red, but it shows up the dot, dot, dot. It shows that they're got the keyboard up, they're willing and ready to respond, and you're waiting for that response, you need an answer, and then all of a sudden, the dot, dot, dot goes away. And you're like, are you kidding me right now? (laughs) You're thinking to yourself, you were on the verge of answering my question that I need an answer to, you dot, dot, dotted me, and you left the conversation. And you don't hear from them for six hours. Now, I understand that when I, when I teach, I'm point one, but I got three more coming back at me. That I've looked at my phone and been like, I texted you five hours ago. And there's a little seed that wants to start stirring around in my spirit that says, why would they do that? Why would they think that there's something more important? You were already at that point of responding to me, yet you chose not to respond to me. What's the deal? I know I'm the only one that's been in this. I know. And so what could happen is at that point, I am at the Y in the road. I have the option to say, well, maybe something more important came up than my need. Or, or I could say, well, they really don't care about me at all. Look, they've offended me. So now I have the ability within my mind and my spirit To forgive them and let it go and say, well, they'll get back with me when the time is right. Or I could harbor those feelings and, oh, now I'm about to get real. When they text me back, 
I give them the dot, dot, dot. I put them on hold. How many remember hold? Anybody remember hold on the old telephone with the cord that was like 40 feet long and you could walk around the whole house. You just tangled yourself up in it. And you're like, hold on, I have another call. And you click the button. We thought that was the coolest thing when I was younger. You had hold. Young people today don't even know what a corded telephone. My kids saw a corded telephone. They're like, what is this thing? Why has it got a plug on it? You can't go anywhere with it. I said, that was the purpose. That's so mom and dad could hear your conversation. Or you'd be on the other line and you hear your grandma pick up the phone. Hmm. Proverbs 17 and 14, the New Living Translation says this, Beginning a quarrel is like opening a floodgate, so drop the matter before a dispute can break out. That's a great little nugget of word and wisdom right there. Beginning a quarrel is like opening a floodgate. Trying to start a fight just for the sake of starting a fight. It says don't do that. It says drop the matter before it can escalate any further. Proverbs 19 and 11. People with good sense restrain their anger. They earn esteem by overlooking wrongs. In other words, people that have a right sense about their mind have the ability to say, I'm not going to get angry. I'm going to overlook that. I'm not going to hold that against them because I don't know what's going on in their life. I'm a firm believer that there are many that walk around us each and every day and we are completely at times unaware of what that person is going through. If there's ever a time that we as the body of Christ have to be sensitive to the Holy Ghost and be sensitive and have a spirit of discernment that we walk by somebody and know they're going through something, how to respond to them, what to say to them, to encourage them because when someone is battling something, it's easy For a word to be taken out of context. A how something is said to be taken out of context. And an offense is made. And it's hard to overcome an offense. Solomon here in Proverbs is telling us that a wise person is someone that doesn't make a federal case out of every injury they experience in life. This is not to say that even small slights aren't painful. You ever got a paper cut? I was in one of my accounts a couple months ago, and I know I'm a big baby. I am. I don't like needles. I have to go to the doctor this week and get some things taken care of, and one of them is to get some blood drawn, and I'm, pray for me, I'm scared. (laughs) I do not like needles at all, period. No, I get offended at the person trying to stick me, and I have to pray before I go in so I don't hold a grudge against them. But I I was walking out of account and I went to shut the door and it was a wood door. And I just slightly slid my hand on the door and I got a piece of steel in the end of my finger. I could not see it. I got my phone out. I zoomed in my camera to see if I could see it. I did everything I knew possible to get it out. But it hurt so bad. Not just then. But days after, because every time I grabbed something, it would feel that little cut, that little, that little poke, that little sting. It was the slightest of thing. It was small. If I was to say something to somebody, man, I got this little steel splinter. They're like, oh, come on. It's not that big. But to me, it was something major because I felt it every time I moved, every time I reached out to help or uh, come on somebody. Now I'm preaching right now. 
Every time I, that little offense got, became more noticeable to me every time I would reach out and try to touch something because I felt the sting of that wound. That's why we have to make sure that we don't allow, as the Bible says, the small foxes to spoil the vine. But what about major offenses? They shouldn't be overlooked, should they? Is it even, is it possible to even treat every offense the same way? Is it humanly comprehensible that something as serious as, as something that would be done to a child be compared to something as trivial and as a sarcastic remark from a friend? How could God possibly expect us to treat those two things the same way? See, here's the thing. Forgiveness does not trivialize our pain just as God does not trivialize our sin. No matter how big the sin, God does not punish you differently from one sin to the next sin. All is sin in the eyes of God. Therefore, all offense is the same in the eye of the beholder. Some people believe that when God forgives our sin, he overlooks our sin. But that is not what the Bible teaches. Nahum, Nahum 1 and 3, the first portion of this scripture, says the Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great. And he never lets the guilty go unpunished. The Bible says that judgment begins in the house of God. And just because God's judgment hasn't happened yet, doesn't mean that God has overlooked it. So many times we try to play both judge and jury when we're really called just to show mercy and grace. See, God's mercy cannot override His holiness. He does not casually declare that sinners are suddenly righteous and serious offenses are suddenly inconsequential. Our sinful offenses demanded a payment and that took the agony of Calvary. Sin does not equate because, hear me when I say this, God's mercy cannot override His holiness. God will not overlook sin for the sake of His holiness. Sin has to have a penalty. That's why he came and robed himself in flesh. That's why the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 says, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glorious of only the begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God became flesh. He became robed in humanity. He took on sin, but knew no sin. He had to, in order to get rid of that painful state of sin that every one of us are born into, it took the agony of Calvary to eradicate that. If you're thankful for Calvary, would you just clap your hands unto the Lord right now? If a perfect God finds it impossible to just overlook sin against Him, how could he expect us to just overlook serious hurts afflicted by others against us? See, sin creates an obligation and someone has to pay for that sin. And if forgiveness is going to simply gloss over the serious wrongs that have been done to me, then I shouldn't have to forgive. Or should I? Number two, forgiveness lets people off the hook too easily. One of the most basic hindrances to forgiveness is the fear of further abuse. 
We have a legitimate concern that forgiving our offender will give him permission to hurt us. Give them permission to hurt us even more deeply. Such a legitimate fear about the consequences of forgiveness probably prompted this question from Peter to Jesus in Matthew 18 and 21. The New Living Translation reads this way. Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? And he says seven times in a question mark. He asked Jesus the question, how often is it required of me to forgive someone that has offended me or hurt me or done me wrong. And he throws out a number of seven times. Now you have to understand that seven times is greater than what was taught by the Jewish rabbis. Because the Jewish rabbis taught after the third offense you were over. You were done forgiving them. It reads this way in Luke 17 and 4. If, if he trespassed against the seven times in day one, one day... And again, seven times against you in the next day. And he says, I repent. Here's what Jesus said. Forgive him. So in other words, Peter's asking this question. So you're telling me, I imagine the conversation in my mind's eye goes this way. Jesus is standing there and Peter knows who he is. And he asked him, he says, so you're telling me if, if I've been offended seven times, that seems fair enough. I should forgive him seven times. And Jesus says, no, seven times 70 in a day. One portion says, so if somebody does this against me today and they say, I'm sorry, but then turn right back around again and do the same thing to me again. And they say, I'm sorry. What am I to do, Jesus? He says, you forgive them. It's so simple that. It's hard to grasp that we can not, it's just, it, I don't want to say it's not that easy, but it's that easy that it's that hard. Because in our minds, society has told us, if somebody does us wrong, you get them before they get you again. Amen. I'll be honest, amen. I felt that way. Oh no, you're not going to do that to me again. And we build this wall around us. We build this, this fortress around us that says, I'm not going to let anybody close to me. I'm not going to let anybody near me. I'm not going to let anybody hug me or tell me they love me or any of that because that's happened to me before. Somebody did that once again and I let it go and they hurt me again and it's not going to happen again. I didn't forgive them and I want to, I don't want to harbor that anymore. So my best option is to seclude myself. But what seclusion does is it isolates the mind and the ability to constantly focus on the wrong instead of the forgiveness to make it right. And we find ourselves in a spiritual turmoil because we, we want to have victory, we want to feel love, but yet we've built this wall around us out of fear that they, that we will get hurt again. So before we come down too hard on Peter for really not knowing that there is no limit to forgiveness, we got to ask ourselves, how many times are we willing to forgive a person for committing the same serious offense against us? And suddenly, Peter seems quite generous. As I said, one rabbi in Peter's day taught that you forgive people three, day, three times for that same offense. 
So Peter was offering more than twice the going rate of forgiveness, but he still believed, as many of us do, that there surely must be some limit to prevent ourselves from being taken advantage of. Where is the cutoff point? Where is the place where we say no more? There is not a place where we say no more. We continue to, we continue to forgive, but we find avenues around. I had to do that in my life with loved ones that were close to me. It, it got to a point in my life where I said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not paying. I'm not going to just give you money to do whatever to pay quote unquote bill. I'm not going to give you money to do this. I'm not going to do certain things. I had to say no, but I found other avenues where I could still be a blessing. Without enabling the the accuser. If forgiveness is just going to carelessly let people off the hook to sin again. Then I shouldn't have to forgive. Or should I? Remember these are, these are points or, or ideas that can be placed in our mind to avoid the issue of forgiveness or that ability to forgive or to the, 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 the fact, the trial that says, do we need to forgive? Point number three is forgiveness places too much responsibility on the victim. Quite a convincing argument can be made for the fact that asking victims to let go of their pain. And deny their desire for justice is placing too much responsibility on the offended instead of the offender. Blaming the victim instead of the victimizer. There comes a point in time in your life that you have to know that it wasn't your fault. That what happened to you in your life wasn't because of you, but it was the decisions of other people. And I am not going to let the decisions of others dictate the joy and the righteousness and the peace that God wants to give me in my life. But we've been taught and indoctrinated by society that says, if I forgive, the offender will go off scot-free, but I'm held hostage by the offense. It seems similar to coming across someone that has been injured in a car accident and telling them, you just take care of your own injuries while I go tell the driver of the other car, don't worry about it, it's okay. That seems very simplistic, and it is. Isn't it unrealistic to place forgiveness, the forgiveness burden on the victim of the wrong? Is it logical to expect them to be able to let go of these serious hurts? Are we asking the offended to do the impossible? The word of God gives us the distinct impression that he doesn't exempt us from the task just because they are unfair or difficult. Matthew 5, 38 through 41 One version reads this way, you know you have been taught an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to try to get even with a person who has done something to you. When someone slaps your right cheek, turn and let that person slap your other cheek. How many are willing to do that? That's a tough word. If someone sues you for the shirt, for your shirt, give up your coat as well. If a soldier forces you to carry his pack one mile, carry it two. If forgiveness is going to place such a heavy burden on my shoulders, then should I have to forgive? Point number four to argue the fact of forgiveness is this. Forgiveness is unfair. 
Gradually, as we have considered these legitimate objections to forgiveness, we have inadvertently uncovered the bottom line argument on which all other objections to forgiveness are based. Have you detected it lurking in the background, hidden behind the words spoken earlier? It is this, simply this, forgiveness is unfair. Because every time there is forgiveness, there is an offender and there isn't a offended. The, the, the playing field is never equal. That's what makes forgiveness unfair. All of us, every one of us in this room are created in the image of God, regardless of how badly that image has been marred by sin, how bad life has handed us the proverbial cards that have been dealt to us. We still retain a sense of innate fairness about us. When we see a wrong committed, we instinctively know that it's unjust for that wrong to go unpunished. Isn't there something fundamentally unfair in letting our offender go free without any consequences? And if forgiveness is essentially unfair, then should I have to forgive them? So, what is forgiveness? We're going to Break down now. We've, we've argued the point of, of do we forgive and here are the offenses and should we forgive this? But now let me explain to you why we must forgive. All of these rational objections arise from the basic misunderstanding of the concept of forgiveness. So before we define the word biblically, let's state what forgiveness is not. It is not denying the reality of your pain. It is not letting your offender off the hook. It is not blaming you, the victim. It is not unfair because God cannot do anything unfair. The Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust. You ever looked at somebody and go, well, I don't understand why this blessing is flowing to them and not to them. Why is this happening and not this? And we begin to question, but we always have to ask ourselves, it rains on the just and the unjust. That God is not a respecter of persons. And God cannot do anything that is unfair. Romans 9 and 14. In the Amplified Version it says, What shall we conclude then? Is there injustice upon God's part? Certainly not. If forgiveness is quote unquote, none of the above, then what is forgiveness? The Greek word translated forgive carries the idea of a release from some type of obligation, most commonly a financial obligation. That's how Jesus, that's how Jesus most often illustrated the concept of forgiveness to it. It gives a release from the, the obligation that you don't owe anymore. Luke seven forty one. And 42, then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay this man, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? So the money lender chose to release both the debtor's from their very real obligations. The money was owed. 
was not a figment of his imagination. He sat down and he counted out the 500 pieces of silver to the one man. He went over to this man. He counted out 50 pieces of silver. It took his time. It took his effort. It took his willingness. It took his grace and his mercy to first of all be willing to give them what they needed to survive and to supply for them and their family. But then... They said, we can't repay the debt. So the man made a conscious decision. The money lender made a conscious decision. I'm going to forgive you of those debts. You don't owe me anymore. You, you, the 500, it's, it's written off. I don't even, we're not going to talk about it anymore. The 50 pieces, it's over. It's not going to be talked about anymore. I canceled those debts. We're starting fresh. He had a legal right to be repaid. He was the innocent party in this. He simply was being generous. He opened himself up to give, expecting in some portion to be repaid. The the borrowers had a legal obligation to pay. So we have someone who is legally right to be repaid and the borrowers had a legal right to pay back. There was a deficiency between their debt and their resources. So the rule of accounting said that the books had to be balanced. It had to go to zero. If something was given out, it had to be paid back to get the balance to zero. The greatest misunderstanding about forgiveness is that it is simply overlooking someone else's transgression. The truth of the matter is that someone always has to pay. Because an offense always creates an obligation that must be satisfied. You say, well, I thought we were supposed to forgive them. We'll get there in a moment. So here, here let me, let me, let's put it this way. Someone hits you at a stoplight. You're stopped at a stoplight. They rear in your car at a stoplight. When you get out, you take one look at your car. The, the trunk is no longer your trunk. It's in the back seat. You go from a Chevy Malibu to a Mazda Miata. I don't know, that's just cars that came to my mind. Huh? And you, you look at it and you're like, oh man, this is going to create, it's going to be a lot of money to repair this damage. You're standing there and you're upset. Then all of a sudden this elderly lady gets out of the car and begins to cry. She, between sobs, she tells you that she's a retired missionary and I have limited resources and I'm sorry, sir, I have no insurance. You tell her, ah, don't worry about it. It's okay. It's all right. It's no problem at all. You, you tell her it's no problem. You forgive her because you understand she has limited resources and no insurance. The next day, you've already forgiven the debt, but you walk out to your Chevy Malibu, which is now a Miata. And you're like, I got to take this to the to the body shop and you you take it there and he looks it over and he hands you the bill and it's a $2,000 estimate. And you automatically think to yourself, who's going to pay for the repairs? And the simple answer is this, you are. You let the other driver off the hook. The offense created an obligation that must be satisfied. But there was a deficit between her obligation to pay and her resources to pay. There was a gap between 
she had to pay because she was at fault. But she didn't have the resources to that. She didn't have the ability to pay for the damage. However, the deficit did not just evaporate when he said, I forgive you. Once this man would say, or you would say, I forgive you for rear-ending me. You begin at that moment to take on ownership of the offense and say, whatever the cost is, I'm willing to pay for it. It's the same thing when someone offends you. And you say, I forgive you. It's okay. I forgive you. But what the enemy wants you to do is to forgive them and then get in the car and talk about it. And begin to poke that wound and begin to, to, to dig in that and create emotions again. Once you've already proclaimed the inevitable that they don't have the resources to, 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 to pay back or maybe it's not on their plate to say, I'm sorry, but you made the decision to say, I forgive you. So the ownership now, in order to balance out the deficit, you have to take on the payment of forgiveness. By saying, I'm so, it's okay, I forgive you. No worries, it's done. No, no harm, no foul. You go up, boy. That gives you the ability, the next service, to walk up to that same person and say, I love you, brother. I love you, sister, because the debt has been paid through the simple word of forgiveness. This is the essence of forgiveness. When we forgive, we acknowledge that a wrong has occurred. We recognize that there is an obligation for repayment. We choose to release our offender from that obligation and to cover the loss ourselves. Most of us have no trouble with the first two because we are an expert at record keeping. (laughs) The stumbling block for us is the third ingredient of forgiveness. Why should I have to suffer the consequences myself when there are many reasons why I shouldn't forgive my offender? So Jesus' answer to Peter's question about forgiveness anticipated such objections and it offers us some compelling reasons to unilaterally forgive. Matthew 18 and 22, here's Jesus' answer. Not just seven times, Peter, but 77 times. Perhaps after a brief pause to let the impact of that statement settle in the mind of all of his listeners at that moment, Jesus relates a dramatic and unforgettable story to drive his point home. It's found in the very next verse, Matthew eighteen twenty three. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who, de- who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process... One of his debtors was uh, brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He could not pay. So the king ordered that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to be pay back that debt. But the man fell down before the king and he begged him and he said, Oh, sir, be patient with me and I will pay it all. Then the king was filled with pity for him and released him and forgave his debt. Although this servant had has absolutely of no way at that moment to make to make even the smallest dent in such a huge debt. It begs for just a little more time to try. What a pitiful sight to see a grown man married with children about to lose everything, about to be sold everything to pay back a debt that he could not pay back, groveling before a king. But what a beautiful thing the king did. But because... 
Because he felt compassion for the man. This is a perfect illustration of forgiveness. The servant was owed a very real debt to the king. The king had every right to expect real repayment of this debt. But the king voluntarily released the servant from his obligation and he covered the loss himself. Now think about that for a moment. You're owed a million dollars and your emotions are high. Your mind's not thinking clearly and you say, grab him, his wife, his children, get everything he owns and I want you to sell it. He will pay me back. And all of a sudden, the man falls before the king's feet and he says, please, oh king, sir, please forgive me. I will do everything I can. I will pay it back little by little. Just please give me a little more time. And the king, who had mercy and grace, says, okay, I'll give you more time. Do we not know that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? That at some point in time we have been wronged and we have wronged. And I thank God that at times when I did the wrong, that someone gave me a little more time to course correct my life and to get better. And I also thank God that there was times in my life where I was the wronged and I gave someone else time to get it together. Because we got to understand that we will be wronged. We will be offended. The Bible says so. You will be offended for my name's sake. If the name of Jesus is applied to your life and you are part of the church and you claim to be a, a born again Christian, you will be offended simply for anything else. The name of Jesus Christ. So we've talked about logical reasons tonight of why I shouldn't forgive. But here I want to give a few points on why strong reasons why we should forgive. Number one, forgiveness is often the way to settle a debt. Realistically, what alternative to forgiveness did this king have in Matthew 18? He didn't have to release this slave, but the slave's imprisonment uh, would have result, would not have resulted in even one dollar returning to the king's kingdom. Was there any advantage to be gained by demanding that this slave remain behind bars for the rest of his life? See, the king was smart enough to realize that he was holding a debt that was uncollectible. Many people struggle with offering forgiveness because they are unaware that they are holding a worthless debt. They mistakenly believe that there's some payment that can be that that they can extract from their offender that they will be compensated for their loss. And understandably they want vengeance, but the truth is that there are very very few people that have resources to pay for their offenses. What satisfactory payment could someone give to compensate for losing a loved one by a drunk driver, a reputation slandered by a false rumor, a marriage destroyed by infidelity, a childhood, uh, a child being hurt. Gandhi once said and observed, he said this, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth cannot sustain itself forever. Ultimately, both parties end up blind and toothless. <laughs> <laughs> 
So suddenly Jesus' seemingly outlandish solution of turning the other cheek and offering the other appears more reasonable. He understood that forgiveness is sometimes the only way to break the endless cycle of hurt and unfairness. The toughest thing I've ever had to do in my 25 years since I first repented of my sins and I went down in a watery grave in the name of Jesus and God filled me with His Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. It was not giving up a lifestyle that was in correlation to the world, in attire, in speech, in what I listened to, what I watched, what I saw, what I did, my actions, my reactions. Those were not my greatest struggle. My greatest struggles were forgiving the ones that have wronged me and had no remorse for what they did for me, to me. It was the hardest point in my life when I looked at my mother years ago when I went back home. I took her out to eat. We drove 12 hours and she didn't, she doesn't have the means to drive 20 minutes to see us. But yet, I understand grace and mercy and I said, well, that's okay, mom, let's meet and I'm going to take you out to eat. Brother Wright, so when I took her out to eat, I said, where do you want to go? Anywhere you want to go. And she went to Golden Corral and I said, help me, Jesus. <laughs> the bread was good. And when I sat there after we laughed at stories and Things of that nature because in the mind of the offender, everything is good. Nothing has happened. All is well in the world. And I sat there across the table. And then, you know, it's like the first time I, I went to an altar. I sat on that fourth row and I don't know what he preached. I can't tell you what he preached. I've said it many times. And that, that lump that was here got to right here and couldn't breathe. And that conviction got on and you felt like you just needed to... Go and do something that's called conviction. And I sat across from that table and I looked at my mom and I said, Mom, I want you to know that I love you. I'm praying for you. And then I forgive you. And I expected like this, ah, oh, moment, you know, ah, lights to come out there and go and corral, angels to fall down. And I didn't get what my flesh wanted. I didn't get what my flesh thought was due to me. Tears of sadness and sorrow and embrace of, oh, I'm sorry, Tim. I didn't mean to do it. I got a, a stare with, okay, I love you. Because in the offender's mind sometimes, there is no understanding of hurt. But I knew. And the hardest thing I ever did was sit there at Golden Crown, not just try to swallow down the food, but try to get that I'm, I forgive you out. Because I knew in order to be successful in my walk with God and what God had called me to, I could not harbor the pain. Because in my mind's eye, as I stand here, I can live out every moment of my life as well as you can. 
You can live out every hurt, every pain, every word that was spoken to you, everything that was ever done to you. It's rehearsed in your mind over and over and over. But there has to come a point in our lives where we say, God, enough is enough. I cannot carry the debt of holding this grudge any longer. And we say, I forgive you. And it was at that moment. I mean, I make it sound like it was, it was just like this Holy Ghost moved in and we had revival, but the lump was there. I said it and it was this peace that came over me and we went right back to telling stories. But I walked away and I drove 13, 12 to 13 hours home with such a peace and a joy and an assurance in my life that I no longer held what I was not supposed to hold any longer. But I had let go because I understood that there had to be a balance. Huh? In order for you to be a successful Christian, if there is a word, it's mentioned once in the Bible, but a, um, how shall I say it, a victorious Christian, you have to have balance in your life. And that balance includes that somebody cannot pay back what was done to you, so you release them of that debt. And the slate is clean. Oh my God. I feel the Holy Ghost right now. Maybe your victory, maybe your miracle, maybe the prayer that you've been praying is hinged upon two, three words. I forgive you. Then if we could utter that, because this point two says, when you forgive, it frees you to move on in your life. Somebody say amen. Sometimes it seems the only option is to cut our losses rather than risk needless preoccupation with a hopeless situation. Why should the king spend every waking moment checking the royal bookkeep and neglect the rest of his kingdom? Each one of us will have many situations arise in our life where we are much more concerned about someone else's obligation than... We're worried about somebody, what somebody else's part is than what we are supposed to do. I see it in my kids. Well, I swept and Heidi didn't do this or I vacuumed and Ethan didn't do this. I've done, I came home one day and my kids had a whiteboard that they used for homeschool and there was a line <laughs> drawn in the middle and on one side was all of what Ethan had done and on the other side was all of what Heidi had did. And I said, wow, I walk in to, I'm thinking exuberation, man, a lot of stuff got done. I walked in the house and here's what I hear. Look at all the stuff that I did and look how little she did or he did. Because it's our nature to always be worried about what somebody else is doing. Guilty as charged. I love them all. Not because I like to spend money, because I like to people watch. I like to see what other people are doing. Am I the only crazy guy? Am I, uh, we got other people watchers in here? And I don't, you're like, oh man, he's going to be watching me in church now. No, I don't watch people in church. <laughs> I'm, I'm focused on him. <laughs> but I like to walk by and just see their mannerisms, see how they handle themselves. And I, I look for opportunities for the Holy Ghost to go, go, go talk to them. Or I walk down the mall and I wait to see somebody that's just sitting there. And I'll just sit down beside them and they kind of give me that look. They don't know that I've been watching them for a while. I know it really sounds creepy now that I say it. 
<laughs> Y'all are like, please, God, don't let him see me at the mall. <laughs> and I go and I sit down beside him and I just strike up a conversation. And it's amazing that if we'll be attentive to people, what people will convey and confide in us and they don't even know you. Because it's easier to release your true emotions with somebody that you may never see again than to go to the person that knows you and ask for forgiveness. One of the best reasons for, for forgiving someone is not what it does for them, but it's what it does for you. See, letting go of a rattlesnake might help the snake, but it benefits you as well. Hebrews 12 and 1, the latter part of this scripture says, Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily hinders our progress. Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Can you imagine the servant's re relief when this king said, All of those, all of that debt is done. It's been forgiven. It's been forgiven. Now think about that. King, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Give me another chance. And as soon as he hears the words, I'm sorry, he gets up. And he goes and finds somebody that owes him money. Here's what it says in verse 28. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded an instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient and I will pay thee, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and jailed until his debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and they told him what had happened. The king called in the man that he had forgiven and said, You evil servant. I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison until he had paid every penny. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and your sisters in your heart. Did you notice what Jesus adds at the end of the story? That's what my heavenly father will do to you. If you refuse to forgive. See the laws of God decree that those who refuse to forgive. Enter their own private torture chamber. Sentencing themselves to a lifetime of needless pain. John MacArthur observes. Unforgiveness is a toxin. It poisons the heart and mind with bitterness. Distorting one's whole perspective on life. Anger, resentment and sorrow began to overshadow and overwhelm the unforgiving person. A kind soul, a kind of soul pollution that inflames evil appetites and evil emotions. The Bible's term for unforgiveness is this. Bitterness. The Bible's term for unforgiveness is bitterness. The Greek word translated bitter comes from the word meaning sharp or pointed. Just as there are certain tastes and smells that are sharp to the senses, all of us can recall offenses committed against us that may have occurred many, 10, 15, 20, many years ago, but they still hurt even when we turn them over in our mind. And what we do is we risk poisoning our life by holding on to that grievance.
Hebrews 12, 15, exercise foresight and be on the watch to look after one another in order that no root of resentment, rancor, bitterness, or hatred shoots forth and causes trouble and bitter turmoil that many become contaminated and defiled by it. There's an old saying, I don't know where it's from, but it says, misery loves company. Anybody that's ever been hurt or offended, they want to go and find somebody else that's been hurt or offended. And they begin to share. And what happens is those roots of bitterness and resentment and anger began to intertwine together. And sooner or later, the love of God or even the forgiveness of God cannot destroy those roots because they get together and they begin to converse about whose offense was worse. And they shouldn't have did that and so forth and so on. And the place of forgiveness becomes an island that the eye cannot see. With every offense comes a choice. We can hold on to it and we can be, and, and become bitter or we can release it and become better. James Garfield had been president of the United States for less than four months when he was shot in the back with a revolver on July 2nd, 1881. While the president remained conscious, the doctor probed the wound with his little finger, unsuccessfully trying to detect the bullet. Over the course of the summer, teams of doctors tried to locate the bullet by constantly pressing into the womb with their finger, trying to find it. The president clung to life through July and August, but in September, President James Garfield finally passed away. Not from the gunshot, though, but from infection. The repeated probing of the wound, which the doctor thought would help the president, was what inevitably killed him. Because the doctor thought that if I could just dig in here and I could get to the source of the problem, if I just keep poking around on this wound, the bullet's got to eventually come out. But what he thought was helping was really killing him. Continually reliving the hurts we've experienced infects not only our life, but the lives of those around us. One of the strongest arguments for forgiveness is the consequences of unforgiveness. Frederick Beckner observes on of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor that last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways it is a feast fit for a king. However, the chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at feast is you. So forgiveness is the obligation of the forgiven. The Bible teaches that there is an inseparable link between receiving and granting forgiveness. In Jesus' parable, he teaches us that personal sin against God has produced obligation we can never hope to repay. But the king forgave us. How many are thankful today that though we were born, conceived in sin and shaped in iniquity, that the King came and forgave all of our transgressions. He forgave everything I've done and continue to do so because the blood does not lose its power. With Jesus' parable also has stern words for us in our relationships with those who have wronged us. 
We have every right to collect the debt they owe. But we have a higher obligation to release them from that debt, considering that we have been forgiven much. Forgiveness is the obligation of the forgiven. I'm going to say that one more time. Forgiveness is the obligation of the forgiven. It must be astonishing to God sometimes that those who have been forgiven so much will refuse to forgive so little. Because it's easier. It's easier to avoid. It's easier to walk around. It's easier to not speak. It's easier to give them the dot, dot, dot. It's easier not to go up and address the situation. For many that may know me in a more closer way, I am the type of person that if I feel there is an issue, if I feel that I have done something wrong, I will come to you and I will say, I'm sorry, if I've done something, please forgive me. Now, I'm not patting my back because my arm won't reach that far. But I learned a long time ago that I can come to church. As a, when I first got in church, I offended someone. I didn't even know I offended them. But I started to notice they were going around the other side of the church. Or I'd say, praise the Lord, and they just give me that... <laughs> That mumble, grumble, head nod. Wouldn't look at me. So I knew that I had done something to offend them without knowing that I offended them. And I went to them and I said, I'm just going to go to them. I don't know what I did, but obviously I did something. And so I'm going to make it right. You're my brother. There's a song that says, you're my brother, you're my sister. So take me by the hand. Anybody remember that old song? So whatever I've done, I'll, I'll, I'm sorry I, if I've done anything. One of the best services I've ever had, and, and this is when I was first got in church. It was a smaller church, and it, I don't know. I've not seen it in a long time, but the Spirit of God began to move, and a spirit of forgiveness fell upon the body. And people were going to people, and people were coming to me, asking me to forgive them, and I had no idea what they are talking about. Crying and hugging me. I'm sorry, brother Tim. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do it. I'm like, it's okay. It's all right. And I didn't walk away going, oh my gosh, I wonder what they were mad at me about. <laughs> I could have walked away and went home and allowed the enemy to stir up my emotions and say, well, I wonder why they were so upset at me that made them cry that hard. But instead, I rejoice in the fact that my brother in the church, my sister in the church, had enough faith and confidence that they could come to me and say, I'm sorry, and that I would receive them because I understand I once was lost. I once was in a place where I wronged God and I wronged everybody around me. But by the grace and the mercy of saying, Lord, I'm sorry. I didn't even know what repentance was, but I said it anyway. And God somehow just gave me forgiveness. So why should I withhold what God has given me? I want to be victorious in my walk with God. I want to have power and an anointing. And I want to walk in the spirit that I will not fulfill the lust of my flesh. Lust of the flesh is not always a perverse thing. Sometimes it is harboring bitterness. It's a mindset that says, I'm going to keep this because it's due me. But life is out of balance because if there's a debt to be owed, a debt has to be paid. There has to be a balance. 
So while the pain that someone has inflicted on us, on you, on me, at times is real, it is also negligible compared to the wrong that we have all committed against God. That is the ultimate reason why you should forgive. We, we think in our mind, if I forgive them, I'm going to have to invite them over. You may have to do that. And, if, and rightly so. Because if you say, oh man, if you say you're sorry and you can't invite them to your house to sit at your table, you've not really forgiven them. Because true forgiveness allows you to erase out of your mind. You may never, for, you may never forget that feeling of hurt, but you gotta let that person go and have the confidence and the belief that they will not do that again. But if they do, I forgive you. I'm almost done. Everybody just swallow real well. Corey Ten Boom, the author of The Hiding Place, had been unable to forget an atrocity committed against her while she had been a prisoner of the Nazis in a concentration camp during World War II. For years, she was even robbed of sleep just thinking about the event. She would have anxiety and panic attacks thinking about what was happening when she was a prisoner. She finally sought counsel from a pastor who said, up in that church tower is a bell which is rung by pulling on a rope. But do you know what? After the sexton lets go of the rope, the bell keeps on swinging. First ding, then dong. Slower and slower until there's a final dong and it stops. The same thing is true of forgiveness. When we forgive, we take our hand off the rope. But if we've been tugging at our grievances for a long time, we mustn't be surprised if the old angry thoughts keep coming for a while after we let go of the rope. They're just, I don't want to say it this way, but this is how it's written in the story. They're just the dings and the dongs of the old bell slowing down. And once that force, your will has gone out of them, those thoughts will diminish in frequency and intensity. So I come tonight with this thought. Let go of the rope through forgiveness. Just let go of it. Forgiveness isn't a one-time action of the heart, but it's a continual choice of the will. I'm going to say that one more time before I close. Forgiveness isn't a one-time action of your heart. It is a continual choice of your will. Forgiveness isn't surrendering the right to, to hurt you for hurting me. Because Joseph knows about that. He spent his time in a physical prison, so he was determined not to spend time in an emotional one. He chose to release his brothers permanently, knowing that in the process he was also releasing himself. He never wanted to go back to either one of those jails. The physical jail or the mental jail. So tonight... Settle it in your heart forever that forgiveness is a lifestyle. When you wake up in the morning, you're going to make, make it known to yourself and to the enemy. If someone offends me today, I will forgive them.